In the proud, in the proud, on in the Welcome to the Indie Pram podcast on IndieLive.radio. And my special guest this week is Ian Lawson. Now, Ian needs probably no introduction at all as the author of Yours for Scotland. A very good day to you, Ian. Good day indeed. You've got quite a history within politics in Scotland. Before we get on to current matters, where did it start for you in politics? It started for me in politics when I lived in Clybank. My father was a minister there. They had a very bad Labour Council, very, very bad Labour Council. So I was always opposed to the Labour Party. And at that time, I joined the Conservative Party because they opposed Labour. And uh, I was quite successful in the Conservative Party, probably because I've got a working class accent. And I I always remember when I filled in the candidates form to be a parliamentary candidate in the Conservatives, I asked you, a question which said, what type of constituency would you like to stand in? And of course, the the average Tory answer would be large farming please. You know, (laughs) I I, I, I filled mine in one with a shipyard because I'd been brought up in Clary Bank and I thought, I know a bit about shipbuilding. That's where I should stand in a seat like that. So anyway, to cut a long story short, at the, I think it was the 79 election, no, no, the 83 election, it wasn't a particularly good election for the Conservatives. And there was only two seats in Scotland where there was a swing in favour of the Conservatives, and one of them was mine. Uh, and I think the reason for me being elected as a convener uh, or chairman of the Conservative Parliamentary Candidates Association was that result. I think people said, no, this guy can talk a good game, but... He's actually delivered some votes as well, so maybe we should have him. And of course, the minute I got the post, I infuriated everyone, you know, because I wasn't in favour of the poll tax. That was a good start. <laughs> uh, and the, the other amusing thing was, there was quite a lot of Tory MPs at the time. There was like 24 or 25 of them. But whenever there was a bad subject came up and the TV wanted a Tory MP in Scotland to go on and defend it, they could never be found. And what happened was the TV company started phoning me. And that was fine in a couple of issues where I quite agreed. But then I remember I got phoned up and it was because the government had decided to give judges a huge pay rise. And it was just shortly after they'd refused to give the nurses anything. So I was phoned up and asked if I'd go on. So I went on and of course when I got on the TV, I absolutely slayed them. <laughs> I said it was disgusting. I was ashamed to be in the Tory party. You know, the one thing that came out of that programme was Tory MPs were instructed if the TV phone you, you've got to go. He <laughs> 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 said, wasn't going to let me on it anymore. So anyway, to cut a long story short, Ravenscraig problems came along. My father, despite he was a minister, had worked in the steelworks in Lanarkshire, uh, so I had an affinity with steelworkers and uh, I, I was invited along with the shop stewards to go and examine their case and I went and looked at it as a businessman so I went through the financials I went through and I convinced myself that this was a viable plan that had a future 
And the minute I decided that, I decided I would go public yeah. in support of them. And gradually, uh, relationships with the Conservative Party deteriorated until culminated with the pilot programme of Left, Right and Centre, which uh, they invited me on to debate with the Conservative Party chairman because the Tory tactics was to paint me as a lone wolf, a lone voice in the desert, etc., etc. But I was quite a clever lone wolf. What I'd done was before I decided to leave, I'd written out to a whole lot of Conservative associations asking them what they thought about the steel closures. And, of course, I picked all the constituencies where government ministers were. So I was sitting on the sofa with the Conservative Party chairman. He was pointing out, oh, well, you know, nobody supports them in the party. It's ridiculous. And I let him go for a minute or two. And then I went in this folder and I said, well, strangely enough, this is a letter from Margail and Butte Conservative Association. That's the minister, John Mackay. Let's, he- let's hear what they say. Uh, this is disgraceful, they shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and I went, I, I went through constituency after constituency. But what I didn't know was, and this is quite disgusting, the only reason he appeared in the programme was because he'd done a deal with the BBC beforehand. Really? And the, BB, the BBC had given him a letter that if he didn't want the programme to be broadcast, he could hand it back to them and the programme would be axed. Wow. Or that segment of the program would be asked. And that's exactly what happened. So I left the studio. Nobody said a word to me. I thought it would be broadcast and it would be great fun. And it wasn't shown on the program. So the next morning I was sitting at home and a Tory MP, female, she's not an MP now, Anna McCurley, her name was, she was MP for Renfrewshire West. And she was the one Tory MP that was quite vocal in her support for Ravenscraig. She phoned me up and she said, I've just had a very interesting phone call, Ian, and I've got a telephone number for you. And I said, who is that from? He said, well, it's from XXX, who works for the BBC. And he's just told me the most remarkable story about the deal that the Conservative Party had with them uh, for what you were on TV, what was recorded with you last night. Uh, And he says, he asked me to give you this telephone number, and if you want to give it to a journalist that you trust and are confident would protect the source, I'll be happy to speak to them and confirm it's true. So, of course, I went off and I knew the Scottish correspondent of the Sunday Times because I, I reckoned exposing the Conservatives and the BBC at a deal <laughs> was worthy of the entire United Kingdom. Absolutely. So, uh, I, I passed it on to this journalist. He contacted uh, the chap at the BBC who confirmed the story and they run it on the front page of the Times. Excellent. Um, I made enormous backtracking from the BBC, but I mean, it was all in writing, so they couldn't deny it. Um, so anyway, that was me leaving the Conservatives, and I always like to remind people in the SNP, because folks say, oh, you're a careerist. When I joined the SNP, the SNP were at 12% in the opinion polls. Yeah. The Conservatives were at 25%. Yeah. Uh, so I made it my mission to damage the Conservative Party over steel. Yeah. And I was hugely successful because at the next election, there wasn't a single Tory MP left standing in Scotland. Right. Uh, deservedly so. And we need to get back to those days. Yeah, uh, yeah. Soon.
Goodness me. Well, t- talking about TV in those days, obviously, SNP didn't really get much coverage at all, or absolutely no coverage at all on television. Uh, so what did you do about that? I mean, obviously, I liked really at 12% in the polls. There wasn't a lot of electoral success about to encourage and you know, improve morale. So I decided it would be a good idea if I get involved along with my friend Gil Patterson uh, and we run a couple of campaigns that we could win. So the first one was the, the Fair Fairs campaign where we objected to the fact that Scots were getting charged extortionate prices on the shuttle routes between Glasgow, Edinburgh and London. So we sat down and talked to British Midland and we got them on board with their campaign. I mean, British Midland, can you believe this? Sat and done joint press conferences with me attacking British Airways and their exorbitant prices. And what we did was we extracted from British Midland a promise that they wouldn't increase their fares on the Scottish routes for two years. And then we went down to airports and tried to encourage people to move from British airports to British Midland. They were the only two companies at the time that operated the shuttle routes. And the great thing about that campaign was you couldn't hide how successful we'd been because airlines were required by law to provide to the British Airports Authority their loading numbers. So we ran this campaign for about three months. And over those three months, 10% of British Airways customers moved from British Airways to British Midland. Wow. Now, that's a huge number. That's a good result. You know, so we were able to go back to party activists that helped us and say, look, here's a victory, we can do this. And then probably the most famous was the ASDA campaign. I mean, just tell you a little bit about it, but ASDA is a great target. Think about their name, A-S-T-A, Anti-Scottish Disaster Area. <laughs> right? And we, we had brilliant posters. And, uh, I mean, what we were complaining about was central buying. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, Scottish suppliers get very little opportunity. You know, every penny we spent here in Scotland in their stores, the money just disappeared south and very little of it ever found its way back in terms of orders with Scottish companies. Uh, and what we did, we done a survey of all the supermarkets and as that came out at the time as being the poorest in terms of it. So that we, we wrote to them just a, an innocent letter saying, you know, we've done this survey, here's the results. Tell us, what are you going to do about this? Because this is a problem. And we get this really cheeky letter back, which sort of said, none of your business what we do. We run our, we run our, we run our supermarkets, not you. You know, get stuffed. So <laughs> we thought to ourselves, well, we'll have a bit of fun with this. So, we, as I said, we got these posters done anti-Scottish disaster area. And then the other good thing at the time was ASDA's advertising, was that's ASDA price. So what we did was look, we laid out all our complaints about central purchasing and how none of it came back to Scotland. And then ended up with that's ASDA price. And we handed these leaflets out everywhere. Now, we, we picked a Saturday and we hit every ASDA store in Scotland. They didn't have as many, anything like as many as they've got now. But we hit every one of them. And uh, it got a wee bit out of control in some of the places. Not through planning, just by customer support for what we were doing. 
But, uh, I mean, it was really quite advanced. We had cars to take people, were pedestrians coming in, to take them to another supermarket and then drive them home. I mean, we did it really well. And it started at 9.30. And by 12.30, my phone in my house, I didn't have a mobile at the time, the phone in my house was going non-stop where I started trying to get a hold of me, you know? So eventually my wife got a message to me and I went and phoned them. And basically it was a complete surrender. Uh, we will meet you Monday morning uh, in Glasgow. We will resolve this. Please call off the hounds, you know. <laughs> <laughs> some of the funny things was there was some old age pensioners that asked in Mary Hill. This is a great story. And they decided they could do better than what we were suggesting. So they went in and they got trolleys and they just filled them to the absolute limit. And then got to the checkout and told the girl they only wanted the Scottish goods in them. Right? <laughs> I mean, this caught on like wildfire. I mean, when you get near the checkouts in Mary Hill, there was trolleys everywhere loaded with goods, you know? So I can understand why they were anxious. So anyway, let me tell you what they did. And great credit to them because they realised they'd made a mistake. The first thing they did was they apologised for the letter and said that should never have been sent, sent back. It was a mistake. But what they did was they booked the Holiday Inn in Glasgow uh, for a week. They took out full-page adverts in every Scottish newspaper and asked companies that thought they could supply Asda to get in touch. Then they brought up 30 buyers to Glasgow and met all these Scottish companies. And, I mean, there was huge amounts of business done. I mean, Craig Nicholl, the refrigeration company in Glasgow, they won a contract worth many millions of pounds for the new refrigeration and the new Asda stores. Um, Alex Salmon's constituency, the meat producer there, got huge orders. Margaret Ewing's constituency, Mori, the ice cream guy there, got huge And just across, they introduced the salt tire on their plastic bags. They labelled all the products that were sourced from Scotland in their stores with a small salt tire on it. Yeah, and they, they launched their own as the Buy Scottish campaign. Yeah. So, I mean, it was for the activists who weren't getting any electoral joy because of the political situation, it was a fantastic achievement because they could all pat themselves in the back and say, look, we really changed things for the better here. Yeah. Been involved with the SNP. So uh, it was a, a great moment. Yeah. And yet things seem to have gone backwards to some extent because obviously the campaign is being run now by Ruth Watson with the Keep Scotland the Brand and yeah, highlighting yeah. the lack of Scottish-produced produce or Scottish mark produce or the amount of Scottish produce which goes south and then comes back up here with a, uh, a butcher's yeah, apron on it. On it yeah. Yeah. I'm supportive of what Ruth is doing, uh, but you know, you've got to say the evidence on the ground at the moment is it's perhaps not having the sort of impact we would have hoped, you know, so... But, I mean, it, it shouldn't be up to Ruth, you know, to run that campaign. That's something our MPs and our MSPs in the Scottish Parliament should be running yeah. and making a lot of noise about. I mean, uh, it shouldn't be left to activists to run things like that. Yeah. Know? Now, what, what I was saying before about the, the lack of um, TV coverage for the SNP in the early days, um, I understand you were involved with a stunt at, uh, Bar, is it Barshaw Park, I think, in Paisley? Can you remember that one? Barshaw Park. Is that the one with Jim? Probably. Jim, 
You want to, you want, do you want to tell about that? <laughs> oh, this was just absolutely brilliant. You know, the SNP were getting kept off the airwaves all the time. So Jim got a TV and put it on his put his head inside it on his shoulders, and he went wandering about all over Paisley in the centre of town. You know, and with a, a banner on it saying, "This is the only way you'll see the SNP." on TV, and there's a, a, I was actually in Perth the day he was doing it, and I was sitting with Jim Fairley uh, in a pub in Perth watching the news, and this came on, you know, and of course, Jim had a sticker over his mouth, and he was he's head inside this TV, and he's sitting on a park bench with this little old lady, and he's sitting there, don't you change the channel, you know, don't, don't change the channel, uh, it was just... So funny, we were killing ourselves watching this in the news. That was just absolutely brilliant, you know. And I mean, uh, I, that was the way we—that was the way our politics were at the time. You had to come up with novel ideas to get any coverage. I remember uh, your MP Gil Patterson had a good stunt in George Square with a huge telephone, and uh, this shows you how old we're all getting. Uh, the slogan was cut out the London operator. All right. I haven't heard this one. (laughs) Yeah. That that was a good one as well, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we just need to... uh, That'll be completely lost in MD under 65. (laughs) That that story, to to explain, you used to have to go through the London operator if you wanted to phone abroad. Yeah, that's right. Dial 100. Change, change days now. Absolutely. I, I talking about Gil. Uh, I, I gather you're very supportive of um, bookmakers transacting businesses. You know, take the bet. So, well, uh, would you like, like to tell the listeners about that? That's, that? That was one of the highlights of my political career. We were all in Govan helping Jim Sellers win the Govan seat, and to my utter amazement. Even the day before polling, he was 11 to 2 uh, at the bookies and Labour were huge, huge favourites. And of course, I had access to a lot of the canvassing, you know. So I knew for a fact that, you know, there was no way he was 11 to 2. So me and Gil decided we'd put a bet on. And we, how could we put a bet on and make it the most effective? So we discovered there was a William Hill bookmaker's immediately next to the gates of Govan Shipyards. So we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll go at lunchtime when it will be full of ship workers and we'll go in wearing our rosettes, get a few of us, and we'll all pile in and we'll put money on Jim Sillers. So me having the loudest voice, I was uh, at the front and the girl came down and I gave her a thousand pounds. And I said, I want to put a thousand pounds in Jim Sillers to win tomorrow, you know? And she kept the girl said, I can't take a thousand pounds. I'll have to phone head office. I said, phone head office, you know? So she's on the phone. So the bookies was absolutely full. So I turned around to all the guys and said, listen, guys, I've got a problem here. They're not taking a thousand pound bet on Jim Sillers to win here in Govan tomorrow. Uh, she's on the phone to head office. Will you all help me now? Take the bet. Take the bet. 
the girls on onto her head office hold, holding the phone up <laughs> to, to, to let them hear the entire shot. Shouting, take the bet, take the bet, take the bet. So that, that happened. And then there was a whole pile of folk came in, SNP supporters, all wearing resets, all putting money on J- Jim Sillerson. I mean, it came down 11 to 2, 5 to 1, 9 to 2, 41, 72, 3 to 1. All, all very quickly. You know, they wouldn't even take my thousand bet at 11 to 2. Heck, but I think the last part was 72 by the time they took that part. Anyway, the good the good story about that is obviously Jim, but I'm, I always remember Alison Hunter saying to me, we've been inundated all day with people coming in and asking if that's true about a thousand pound betting chip sellers. You know, it spreads through government like welfare, but the lesson here is if you get a Glasgow man who put a fiver in Jim Sellers, not only is he voting, but his wife's voting, <laughs> his neighbours are voting. Exactly. And he knows he's voting. Jim Sellers to make sure he wins his bet. So what we did was uh, obviously, we'd, we'd won a lot of money. We went back at the exact same time to the bookies to get our money, and we took every single person that was in the bookies in next door and bought them all a drink. Great. Because <laughs> <laughs> they contributed greatly to Jim's victory. That's super. And I, I believe there was a was it a trolley full of coins because they didn't have the notes or something, and they gave you a check and some coins. No, no, the we, we took all the money they had and they had to give us a cheque uh-huh. for the balance, you know, because they didn't have enough money. That's it. Uh, yeah. At, at the time, so it was, it was very funny. Yeah. I believe they tried to do it again in Glasgow Central, but it didn't have the same impact because yep. it wasn't the condensed constituency, it was too divided, you know. Uh-huh. So, you enjoy it. You've got some good canvassing stories to tell then and good experiences of campaigns well it's hard, it's hard not to when you've done it as long yeah. as I did it over the years you know? well tell me about uh, Linwood Hillman Implant what did you do at Hillman Implant at Chrysler well I was our star performer again Jimmy Mitchell that organised this uh, we got the date when the lorries were coming to take away the plant and equipment and we decided we'd have to do you know some form of demonstration so at the time, we had a very attractive female candidate, Jenny Herriot. And uh, the idea that Jim had was we'd chain her to the gates and it would be superb, you know, nice-looking girl chained to the gates, stopping them being able to take the machinery away. So, sure enough, they put out the press release, turned up, great amount of press there. And... Uh, Jim suddenly noticed that they were preparing on the other side of the road different gates because the Linwood factory would be being so big. It was, there was a main road run through it. And Jim seen them preparing over there and he thought, well, we're maybe at the wrong gate here. We better get something. So he gave some of the young lads chains and said, run over there and chain yourself onto these gates so they, uh, so they couldn't get in. And sure enough, no sooner had they chained themselves to the gates than the lorries arrived in convoy, and it was the other side of the road. So this is just absolutely hilarious. Uh, there were electric gates, so the security guy pressed the button, and unfortunately, these young lads that went across had not chained themselves round the join in the double gates, 
so they were actually chained to only one side of them. <laughs> <laughs> Which meant when the guard, when the guard uh, hit the button, <laughs> the gate's still open, and these wee guys are getting attached to the gate, and no choice but to go with it. <laughs> 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 and, and then the lorries piled in. It was not uh, the finest moment, but it's a great story, nevertheless. I believe you were also involved with the Sky Bridge, is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> I always seem to manage to get involved in these. Uh, our branch of the SNP actually decided we'd have a car cavalcade. And oh, we'd I... all go up to support. Uh, I love that. Uh, I love car cavalcades. <laughs> campaign. Uh, and I mean, it's really, it was really quite funny because. Uh, I mean, I actually get charged four different times because I come up with novel ideas to embarrass them further. I mean, a good one was I used to have an American Express card, uh, and their advertising was that'll do nicely, sir. You know, so I got Channel Four, and I had them in the back of my car, and we got to the pay booth, and I knew they didn't take credit cards or anything, so offered my. Uh, American Express gold card, and uh, the guy said, we can't take that. I said, what do you mean that you won't? <laughs> yeah, it won't do nicely. <laughs> yeah. And the point I was making was, it was 57 miles from the turn-off of the A82 to get to Kailo for Kalsh. And, uh, you know, there's no sign saying we don't take credit cards. Now, a lot of Americans travel about with very little cash, and use entirely their credit cards. So I was just making the point that it was ill thought out, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, met some great people, absolutely great people, love the people of Sky. They had real, real good campaigning zeal and good ideas. I mean, they did all sorts of really novel uh, things to keep their campaign going and in the limelight. And I was thoroughly delighted when the tolls were eventually lifted and they were successful. Yeah, superb. What was it like being in control of so many areas of administration and going forward with the SNP and your time with the SNP? Well, I mean, when I became the vice convener in charge of fundraising and administration, the SNP were skint. Let's just be quite frank about it. There was no money in the coffers. When I came up with the idea to launch the challenge, of the 90s, there was no money to pay for the postage for it. So I'd actually to go around the executive and get everyone in the executive to sign up to be members of the challenge of the 90s. And that brought in sufficient money to get the postage for polling the, I think, eight or 9,000 members I think we had at the time. Uh, so that was the, the straits we were in. And of course, you know, politics costs money, election campaigns cost money. So that gives you an idea of how difficult it was for the SNP to compete with the other parties. So the challenge of the 90s was a huge success. I'm not saying we had more money than any other party, but for the first time, we had enough money, you know. Uh, and of course, the political success followed from that. The minute the SNP had a a, a fairly even platform to argue their case. Their case was better than the other parties, and the electoral, the the electoral rewards came from that. Yeah. Um, 
So, I mean, it was a very, very successful time. And Gil Patterson, again, my colleague and friend, uh, did a great job when he took over from me. Also, I mean, it was during that time that Gil and I both offered to underwrite the salary of the, the party's first time full-time fundraiser. Because, you know, what we were trying to do was not only recover the, the dire financial situation, we were trying to put in place a sustainable system that would go on year after year, providing more and more finance for the party. So uh, we did that. The only thing Gil and I got in return for that was that we were allowed to pick who it was that would be the first time through. Uh, and that was our safeguard yeah. that uh, it would probably work out all right, you know. Yeah. So And it did, of course, and we've had a full-time fundraiser ever since. So, you know, but someone's got to take a risk at some point for Absolutely. these things to happen. Absolutely. Simple as that. Yeah. I mean, the previous big idea to, to, to that, that I'd come up with, was to write to every Cameron, don't ask me why Cameron, but write to every Cameron in the American phone books. And they lost thousands. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that, that, that was basically the, the contrast of ideas. Yeah. You've, yeah. Got, you've got to think out of the box. You've got to think yeah. out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that was hope over, you know, over reality. You know? Yeah. So you had to leave the SNP because of, uh, there was it the special envoy for Estonia. Yeah, well, how that came about was I was always a quite keen football supporter, and um, there was six of us, all all on the S. Well, five of us were in the SNP, and we always had one away game every season, sometimes to uh, to go and watch Scotland abroad, and it was really an excuse to have a boys' week, you know. Uh, if I was telling the truth, I would say 90 minutes of football quite often spoiled an otherwise enjoyable week. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the, rule was, the rule was that uh, if Scotland had drawn in a section and none of us had been to that country, then that's where we were going. And that's why Estonia arrived on the, the, the map. And we had a fantastic time. It was uh, a country where at the time... The average wage was forty US dollars a month, a month, not a week. Yeah, where uh, a vodka and orange in a nightclub was twenty pence, a bottle of champagne was fifty pence. So you know the Tartan Army is made up of a variety of people of various financial ability. But here was a location where we all were. The sun was shining. It was a beautiful week in May, and you know everyone was a millionaire. <laughs> so, so, so it was a very, very popular location. Anyway, the outcome of that was I decided that this was going to be a country that was going to go somewhere because it was quite obvious to me it was Scandinavian, uh, you know. And uh, looking at the rich neighbours, Finland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, chances were now that they were free of the Soviet Union, they would get back up there. And I mean, people don't understand this, but prior to the Second World War, Estonia had a higher standard of living than Finland uh, and, and on a par with Denmark. I mean, the only reason they were poor was because they'd been part of the Soviet Union for 50 years against their will. So I thought, this is this could be a good place to start a business. So out of six of us, five of us started businesses 
and Estonia decided basically on that week. And uh, it was, you know, quite successful. Uh, eventually, uh, four or five years later, I took over the state pest control. My business being pest control, I took over the state pest control across the whole country. And I ran that for 10 years before I sold it because I'm now retired. But, yeah. uh, I, I actually I do remember a story, because I know you've been on Indie Live Radio at the studio, but I remember a lovely story you told there that maybe listeners... Uh, to Independent Podcast haven't heard, and that was you gathered all the workers on the first day that you took over the the, the factory. And tell the story yeah, about that. I, 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 absolutely. Well, I mean, I didn't speak Estonian, and none of them spoke English. So, and they were all, I think, pest control was a female job in Russia. It was women that were the pest control operators, not men. And I think they were all a bit petrified about, you know, this Western company well, capitalist, etc., etc., etc. So, anyway, I got an interpreter along, which, interestingly enough, wait to hear this. The interpreter was Chris McLean, the former, the former press officer of the SNP, wow. who married an Estonian, and by this time was speaking fluently. And Chris came along and explained that, you know, welcome to Ian's company. Uh, you're all very welcome. We're going to change things about. There's going to be a lot more training. There's going to be better equipment. This, that, and, that. and they all nodded away. And then he came to the, the, the punchline. And the first decision he's decided is he's going to double your salary. You know? And they're all looking at each other wondering, is he translating this right? <laughs> yes. I'll repeat that. He's going to double your salary. You know? And they were just absolutely ecstatic. But, you know, you've got to be clever in business. And it was a generous thing to do. I didn't need to do it. But what I needed was stability in the workforce. Yeah. I wanted to take it over and have the same people. I didn't want people leaving and going anywhere else. Also, I'd been in Estonia long enough to know that money really mattered. Yeah. And these women were pretty poorly paid by the state. So whenever any of their children were ill or whatever, they took time off to look after the kid. When I doubled their salaries, they were all earning more than their father, than, than their husbands. And when their kids were running the future, it was the husband they took to, <laughs> off, off work. It's a lot easier to run a pest control business if all your staff turn up every day. So, you know, yes, it was generous for them, but it was also very good business for me uh, as well, you know. Absolutely. Right. Well, take us further. What, ha- what happened after Estonia? What brought you from that until should we say, launching the uh, Yours for Scotland campaign? Yeah, well, I mean, the Estonians very kindly, and I was delighted to be so, asked me if I would be their honorary consul here in Scotland, and I did that for 15 years until I retired in November 2018. And then I had to decide, what am I going to do? I mean, I've got a house in Florida as well, so I normally, in non-COVID times, spend six months in Scotland, six months in America. But uh, because of COVID, I'm here all the time at the moment. But uh, I think that I had to make a decision, what am I going to do with my retirement? And I thought, well, it'd be quite interesting to run a political blog because I've been involved in politics all these years. I'm very interested in politics in general. And I desperately want to see independence in my lifetime. So I thought, well, 
our blogs, maybe the, the way to do it. And it's quite amazing. I mean, I've got more contacts in politics now than I probably had when I was the vice convener in charge of administration and fundraising. You know, I speak to more branches, more people speak to me. I, I get information from all over the country all the time. And, you know, thanks to all these people that keep me in touch. I mean, I, I think I would like to deal with, this is maybe the point, to deal with that. Why, you know, you're arguing for great changes in the party. Well, no, get this right. I'm, I'm arguing against great changes that have been made in the party. Yeah. Very, 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 very different. Uh-huh. And I hear quite regularly, but, you know, why didn't you stay inside and change it from the inside? Really? Is anybody that knows anything about the SNP arguing that? Mm-hmm. I mean, last year, may have missed a lot of members' notice, but last year at the conference, they took away the mechanism for being able to change things from in, within the party. It was called National Council. That was the way a member of a local branch, he was given a platform at National Council to raise anything and to build support across the country to get it changed. That was removed by the party at last year's conference. And therefore, there is no mechanism, none at all, to build any support or change anything from within the party. As Dumbarton constituency found out only last week, they can't even talk to their own members without the approval of an access to the mail system. They were trying to find the details, the contact details for other constituencies. There is no mechanism in the party Uh to do that. I have somebody hiding it behind data protection. That's a lot of nonsense. Essential use is an exemption which can be used. Businesses with all these branches all over the country, do you not think they've got a phone directory where one branch can contact the other other branches? It's a nonsense. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is a control feature. And there was a whole lot of control features introduced Last year it was an ambush. Yeah. And too many people were in the tea room. And there was no pre-billing of what was going to be discussed at this and, and internal session at conference. But they put through sweeping changes to the national executive that's now 42 members. I mean, how do you have a meeting with 42 members? You know, yeah. far, far too many people. You know, that should be no more than 20, I would say, including you know, national office bearers, and they need to cut back some of them. I mean, the minority groups are grossly overrepresented. Yep. You know, ridiculous. I mean, if you want to have a minority group, I'm all for it. And that's an important issue. But it should not be sitting on the national executive. It should be sitting a level below that. Yeah. And the chairman of it should maybe have a place on the national executive uh-huh. where he can represent whatever the dominant issue among the colleagues. If you talk to NEC members, and I know quite a number, they haven't been able to talk about anything other than minority issues since this lot got on. They describe it as a student's union. You know, and, you know, that that's the prime... The NEC is the prime committee of the party. It's, the part, it's supposed to run the party. It's supposed to set the political direction, you know, and it's not doing any of these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when people come to me and say, oh, we can wait until after we get independence, you don't realise it. You will not get independence. 
until you get this sorted out. Yeah, I gather independence has not been on the agenda for quite a while on the NEC, which well, is amazing. Well, I've been quite conservative because people on the executive are telling me it's longer than a year. Yeah. yeah so, you know, but I'm just saying a year because I can prove it. I can prove that. Mm. Um, but, I mean, they've lost touch. It's as simple as that. And, you know, it goes further, mm. you know, because all this ties in, all these things tying in, get rid of National Council, change the NEC, give all these minority groups, it all ties in, and the other one that's part of it is get rid of Alex Salmond, because Alex Salmond would never have tolerated any of this. He'd have been a voice against taking powers away from the membership of the party. The ordinary member has lost enormous power. That was what was great about the SNP. It was genuinely grassroots ruled. Now you've got a clique, and you've got a control mechanism. The NEC's been around the party for decades. It's never once in all those decades ever needed a secret ballot. I know. Yeah. When I heard that, and that, 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 that at a stroke destroyed the complete accountability that every branch, every member is entitled to have from those that sit in that committee. You need to know what they're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, they could be doing a lot of things that are harming you. So what could be done to improve that? Because I understand. Well, I'm encouraged because, I mean, as I said earlier, I'm becoming a bit of a clearinghouse for resolutions and various, you know, people, people are sending me what the branches are doing, uh, you know, in terms of trying to sort it. And there's definitely resolutions going in calling for reducing the, the size of the NEC, uh, taking out all these minority groups, Three seats where nobody elects them, they just get appointed by these small minority groups, you know, calling for better organisation, calling for much more concentration on independence, questioning whether we need to have, you know, a better strategy than sitting about waiting for a Section 30 order that's probably never, ever going to come. Um, so, I mean, I'm encouraged that these resolutions are coming in, although the caveat to that is will they be selected to be debated? The way I look at it is if I publicise these resolutions and print them on my Facebook page, on my blog, then everyone knows what's been submitted. Yeah. So when the conference agenda comes out, if none of these resolutions are on them, then people knows, know what, what's happened. Yeah, because I, I've certainly been grateful myself for the fact that there's been publicity for yourself and uh, elsewhere for uh, uh, looking at these proposals that have come through from different branches. And the knock-on effect of that is that these resolutions have been discussed at branch level and uh, uh, indications then obviously for support and obviously the greater the amount of support for resolutions then they can't be ignored and they have been seen far and wide. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's important. Uh, it's important that branches do take the time to send in and make absolutely clear where they stand. The other thing that's important is to make sure that you maximise your delegates to this conference. I mean, I know in the past, a lot of places didn't use their full entitlement because, you know, it's difficult to find people that could afford to take the time off work or put out the money for hotels and all the rest of it. 
But this year it's a virtual conference, so you can do it from your front room. So hopefully branches will make full use of their delegate entitlement and make the sort of changes that are required. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's give people that support independence on the NEC. Yeah. <laughs> How revolutionary is that? <laughs> well, I don't, th- Ian. I don't think the uh, I don't think HQ are, uh, are deaf. I'm sure they've been hearing all the outcry and realise things are not fair. So obviously they're looking at the moment as a a governance review group, uh, looking at areas that uh, can be improved and looking for feedback from membership. So. Hopefully that's going to produce a positive res- re- uh, re- uh, review and uh, consideration. I'd be, very wary, I'd be very wary of that because I've seen some of the suggestions and, uh, you know, Alan Smith's suggestions. And I don't think that, that, I mean, it would be an improvement, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but I don't think it goes nearly far enough. Right, well, how far would you like to go? As I say, I, I would like to see get back to similar when I was there I think there should be one youth representative on the executive elected by the young people a combination of votes between the young students and the young Scottish nationalists whatever they call themselves I think there should be one place for councillors I think there should be one place you know elected by all councillors with every councillor having a vote one place I think for the trade union group, uh, I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then I would have fewer senior office bearers. I'd, I'd bring that back maybe to five, no more than six. So there's six, that's about 10 places. And the other 10 places I would have free and open elections for, elected directly by delegates uh, at conference. So that would give you a, a an NEC of about 20, which is manageable. You can put it around a table, yeah. um, a, a big table. You get a collegiate feel from that, you know. I mean, I just don't understand how you can run an NEC with 42 members. I know. Partic- particularly, particularly with all these minority groups that are all fighting to be heard. I yeah. mean, how they, all get, how they all ended up with double representation is just beyond me. I mean, were folks sleeping last year because you know you can blame the folk that come up with this plan and rightly so, but you've also got to blame the conference delegates, you know, for not being in the hall when these decisions went through. I mean, I always remember a guy he was around when I was around. I'm sure many people listening to this will know Jerry Fisher. Jerry Fisher from Oban. <laughs> Jerry Fisher for all that people had a go on because. He'd worked out a clever way to get speaking, was always to oppose <laughs> everything. That's that and He was a nightmare at National Council sometimes. But Jerry really genuinely recognised and cared that the constitution of the party defended the, the ordinary members. And he was a bastion against the sort of misuse of power that's yeah. gone on in the last year. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So uh, I think. You know, it's important people pay attention to these things in politics. It's not the most exciting uh, subject, but as you've seen in the last 12 months, when they get it wrong, it can have spectacularly bad results. Absolutely. You know, so it's well worth paying attention to this time round. Yeah, because it's a shame that um, Jerry was coming on. Whenever he would come on, it 
it became an event where you look forward to, but more with amusement. And that was so unfair yeah. because people did actually laugh without taking him seriously. And the big shock for me was at, I think it was Aberdeen. And Chris McElhenney came up with the wanting to discuss a plan B. And people were laughing from the front. And when the cameras scanned around on the front, it was all the younger Scots that were there laughing and booing. I thought, I have never seen that at conference to actually boo down someone wanting the membership to discuss a subject. I'm, I'm glad it's being put forward again for this conference. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we definitely we definitely need something. I mean, my own preference in that is very much to use the May election constituency vote as a referendum. I think we should be putting in our manifesto that we're regarding the constituency vote uh, as a referendum on independence. And if we achieve a majority of seats, majority of votes, then that is de facto independence and we go... Uh, at that particular stage. Now, you can only do that if in advance of the election you have made the international community very, very aware of what you're doing that and why you're doing it and pointing to all the attempts to get approval through the Section 30 route, you know. And I think if you do that, I mean, I obviously... Having been a fully accredited diplomat for 15 years, you know, I was in regular contact with the representatives of the other nations that are represented here in Scotland. And I can tell you with complete certainty, there was a lot of sympathy for Scotland's position. Unfortunately, because of the UK's membership of the EU, they were constrained in what they could say. But there was a good number, and particularly the Scandinavian countries, who, you know, they see Scotland as a potential new member of the Nordic Council, for instance, and we welcome an independent Scotland for that reason. But, I mean, it goes further than that. I always remember the Czech Council, his name was Peter Miller, he about carried away in a TV interview during the referendum and came out in support of independence. <laughs> and... Uh, 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 it stayed that way for about two hours until his government pulled him back in, you know. But, I mean, uh, <laughs> there, there, uh, there is definitely, definitely, definitely support there. And, you know, do, I, I, I wonder about how the party utilises it. I think our party's become presidential in style. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a figurehead. But if having that figurehead, the price of it, it's not using all the rest of the talent in the party, then it's not a good thing, you know. If it was me that was running it, I would allocate one MSP and one MP to each country in the EU to start us off with. And I would have them regularly visiting those countries, speaking to all the political parties in those countries and building bridges, you know, and saying, look, we're going to be needing your support sometime in the near future, we want to make sure it's informed support. Yeah. So here's our position. If you get anything you want to talk to us about, please do. Yeah. You know, and let's build those bridges and build that knowledge. The other thing we should be doing 
particularly in the USA, Australia, New Zealand, but in a lot of other countries as, to, as well, we should be contacting the, the Scottish diaspora and we should be encouraging them to write to newspapers in the country they're living in, saying, you know, that Scotland should be afforded the opportunity and right to be independent and calling on people in those countries to support us. We could build very, very quickly quite widespread international support. It's always been a mystery to me why we haven't done that because, you know, if you think about it, if you can build those bridges, get that going, then there's a lot of opportunities, not just politically, but also fundraising-wise as well, to encourage, you know, people, Scots in these countries, people of Scots descent in these countries, to, to, to support the, the cause of independence. It needn't be the SNP. It could simply be yes, Scotland or whatever uh, that, that's done. So, you know, that would be the way I would approach it. Yeah. Right. In your uh, your blogs, I've recently seen criticism from SNP members about your opening up in relation to cons- your concerns for how the SNP could change. And uh, a lot of these... Uh, shall we say, died in the wood, SNP members have been quite abusive. Your reaction has been actually quite excellent in uh, trying to calm them down, but uh, what what could you do further for that? Well, I mean, you understand people want to be loyal to the party. I mean, completely understand that. I always tended to try and do it myself. But there comes times when you just simply can't close your eyes to what's going on. Now, for me, the turning point, without doubt, was the fit-up of Alex Hammond. I thought that was absolutely outrageous. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this don't know the identities of his accusers, but I do. And I can tell you, when you do know, you know exactly who was behind this plot. You know exactly that it was political. You know it was nothing to do with Westminster, much as I regret having to give them a clean bill of health in this. It's nothing to do with unionists. and It's high-ranking SNP members and supporters. And it was politically motivated. I'm sure they wanted them out of the way before they sprung everything that's been happening in the last year. You know, they would never have dared try some of these moves if Alex Salmond had still been about because he was very much a Democrat, he was very much a believer in the party having the rights. He, he never knowledge years in control. He never tried to seize the powers that you're now seeing being seized. He never interfered in the selection battles or, you know, in the NEC or any of these other things. So I, I think for me, I found that absolutely evil. I found it malicious. I thought uh, outrageous that at the end of that trial, given what had happened in the trial, given that, you know, a, ju- a jury of his, his peers threw out every single charge in several cases, proved that the events never happened. Not just that he wasn't guilty, they proved in the course of the trial it had never happened. But the disciplinary procedures of the Scottish National Party, and I used to be <laughs> part of the administration of them, weren't immediately engaged. I mean, uh, there was plenty of complaints within the headquarters. The rules, as I've always understood them, 
as if a serious charge is made against any member that they are suspended until, you know, there's been an inquiry and a decision's come one way or the other, you know. We're now at the ridiculous stage where not one of them has ever been involved, where some of them, I believe, are at the moment trying to become candidates for the party in next year's election. I don't know how they get through vetting where there's a question, is there anything in your past that has any danger of embarrassing you or a party during a campaign? I mean, how did they answer that and get through vetting? Just don't know. You know, so I think there's a lot of concern there. The chief executives himself, you know, has been caught and involved in going, at best, being in touch with and directing some of this. So, you know, he's not been suspended. He should automatically have been right away. So, you know, I think there's a, a lot of problems. I feel like a bit of a soothsayer because if you go back in my blogs about a month, maybe more than a month, I wrote an article about was Nicola having far too much honour, you know, being the party leader, being the chief executive's husband, being, you know, the first minister. Why was this all in the hands of one person? You know, would the party not be? And I mean, this was before all this blew up about the NEC. But I mean, I'm, I'm pro- as I was saying, I'm probably more in touch now than I was when I was in the party. I'm hearing more things. And I could f- feel this bubbling up, that, you know, this was going to explode at some point. And, you know, there was a need to divide, for Nicola's own good, to divide her from some of these issues. Because, I mean, it's just, um, politics is, I know how much time it takes me to run my blog. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's running a government, running a party, you know, the whole thing. I mean, one person just simply can't do it. You know, simply can't do it. So therefore, other people, I mean, there should be a clear division between party and government anyway. I mean, that's just absolutely daft if the party leader also the leader of the government. These two things should be separate all, at all times, you know. So that's the route that I think they've got to go in the future. I think they've got to divide up these roads. I mean, I'm not personal. I'm not making this a personal thing at all with Nicola. I don't care who it was. I don't think there's MD could have done. I think Alex Salmon could have been party leader and first minister in, in the way that Nicola's been expected to do yeah. Well, we certainly live in interesting times and uh, obviously still more to come out in the wash before we uh, we have some clarity. Ian, thank you very much indeed for your contribution to the IndiePan podcast today. It's been much appreciated to hear your stories, uh, the amusing stories, the serious stories. I uh, look forward to welcoming you back again in the future. Uh, but for now, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Indy Proud, yes, Indy Proud, on Indy Live Radio. Indy Proud.